Good morning, church. So for those who were not with us last week, um, I'm going to uh, apologize ahead of time <laughs> for the uh, lack of context you might be experiencing uh, in this message. Um, but what I hope uh, that you do is take into heart and consideration um, really our church's official stance on the gospel of the kingdom and how that directly relates to the ending of abortion, not only in our city, in our county, in our state, but also in our work and encouragement nationwide, and I would say even to that end internationally, that this ultimately would be an enemy that Christ will effectively have put under his foot and conquered prior to his return. And I know this is a tough subject. Okay, last week, uh, after preaching it, it was brought to my attention that I might have come across maybe a little bit arrogant, um, that I might have come across uh, difficult or maybe even abrasive. That was entirely not my intention at all. But I will say this, I'm frustrated, genuinely frustrated. Like I, This is a difficult subject for me. I know it's a difficult subject for those of us who have been in this fight for some time and some of us longer. Uh, for when we engage on this matter, how it's often an attack of the character of the messenger instead of actually dealing with the, the issue at hand. Oftentimes we experience an attack on the way we delivered the message instead of actually dealing with the content of the message itself. Right? I'm by no means a perfect preacher. As, as many of you know here, I, I don't often get the, the opportunity to take the pulpit, so I'm not as tested as our brother Jonathan is, in which I want to say I really appreciate his teaching and sitting underneath it. Um, but I will say this, that I have a message to deliver on this subject matter that I believe is incredibly pertinent and important uh, for us as Christians. This message is hard. It's not an easy one to share. But my hope in this, at the end of this message, when you really take to heart what the Word of God has to say on the matter and what our responsibility is in the matter, uh, that you will take it seriously. And then if you have questions at the end of this, please address it to me. Bring it up to me. I'm the one delivering the message today. Please don't go complaining to Jonathan or someone else about what I have to say. <laughs> We're Christians, right? We need to work through things together. And if you have a difficulty with the things that I'm sharing today, um, please bring that to my attention. I'd be happy to work through them with you. And if there's need for correction, I'm happy to oblige. So with that said, let's open our time together in prayer and ask for the Lord's help in the delivering of this sermon. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share what I believe is your heart on the matter. It's a weighty word to consider the death of the unborn and to consider what a great opportunity we have as a church to live in your light, to share that light with the world, and knowing the difficulty it may bring in exposing the darkness. As my brother prayed earlier, I pray for precision. I pray for your help, um, that you would bring to mind the things that I've studied on the subject, and that I'd faithfully deliver your word. I'd honor you in doing so. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is Titus, uh, specifically t uh, 
I'm going to read in for, for our context Titus 2, 1 through 15, but I'm going to be addressing the very end of that. So for context, let's take a look at this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves, to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive in their own master, to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word and by the preaching of it. So you might ask yourself, what in the world does that text have to do with the ending of abortion? Even the working towards it. How is this, in a sense, going to be leveraged as an argument, if you will, for our work, the necessity of our work, to do so? So building on the heels of last week's message, I brought up a few questions, and pardon me, I have to use my phone to do this. Um, I raised a few questions that I, if you remember, did not really address. Uh, I, didn't, or I didn't debate the other side, if you will. Um, under the title of excuses, I, I asked a few rhetorical questions and made a few comments that I have personally, and I know others have, fielded. And they sound something, they go, they go like this. The issue of abortion is not a gospel issue, Jeremy. Salvation is a private issue between God and man. God's providential hand has ordained and installed our government systems. He put in place wicked leaders that allow child sacrifice. The issue, Jeremy, is beyond our control. And furthermore, the Lord has already committed them to judgment. Destroying their children is part of that. They are blind, they're slaves of the devil, incapable of changing their minds. Jeremy, you must have a low view of the sovereignty of God to think that we can affect governmental changes on the matter. The church really has no place, Jeremy, in marketplace, in the marketplace for civics. Jeremy, that's not my calling. I am not gifted in the role of evangelism like you are. Jeremy, I don't have the time or energy or the finances, and nor would I invest them anyway because I really don't believe that what you're doing is worth it. Why is it that Emmaus Rhodes only concentrating on this? It seems like that's all you guys talk about. There are other issues the local church should be focused on, such as feeding the homeless and caring for orphans and widows, and or maybe focusing more on internal matters. Your approach really is not that effective. You need to be a little bit more gentle, more loving, less judgmental. You need to preach the gospel and then when necessary, use words. Right? What we are accomplishing by being out there on a street corner, or excuse me, what are we accomplishing by being out there on a street corner holding those horrible signs 
and badgering people and being mean to the ladies going in. It seems, Jeremy, to be a complete waste of time. That's hard for me to choke on, guys. And I've choked on them for a really long time. We're now, what, Pete, going on three years out there? Um, And Pete and Wendy have been involved in uh, programs like Operation Rescue. And I know they have heard much more than I have over the years. Excuses just like this, and I'm sure Pete can share more with you (laughs) of what those excuses sound like and what they look like. Yet we still have, for some reason, abortion going on in our city. And we have major Christian organizations, hundreds of churches, and somehow this is an issue. And I've been really challenged to think, how could we better convey the message that the Christians should be involved? How could we make this content shareable to those uh, out there that maybe they would share this with someone else, a pastor or maybe a friend or someone who might be in leadership, that they would use this content to encourage other people to get involved in the fight? Um, it's, it's something that I've been working through and wrestling with. So, with that said, again, you might be asking yourself, Jeremy, how in the world are you going to take this text that you just shared by adorning ourselves in every matter with the gospel and applying this to the issue of abortion? All right, you ready? Let's go. Let's work through this together. And if uh, see, what, see how you land your plane. See if you can land it, or if you do land it in the same way I do. Okay? So I want you to notice a few points that I, I highlighted for myself here. Uh, on this text, okay? We need to teach, if you notice, the exhortation to Titus is teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's what we need to teach in what accords with sound doctrine. We need to be sober-minded, dignified people, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love, and in steadfastness. We need to teach what is good, he says. Again, bringing up self-control and purity, We need to be kind and submissive. We need to show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Such that the word of God would not be reviled, nor that we could be condemned, that our speech could be condemned by an opponent, that they would be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Again, he brings up this submission as a worker, right, as a bondservant. We could make the correlation of an employee today. In many ways, it's bond servitude. (laughs) We are to be submissive to our employers. Be well-pleasing, not argumentative people. Okay, For what? Showing all good faith so that in everything, everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. I want to talk briefly. I want to ask a few questions here, okay? I want to just ask a question. What does it mean? uh, This text stood out to me. What does it mean that we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? Adorning it, okay? What is the the Apostle Paul's particular focus here for his disciple Titus? Remember, in the beginning of this text, he he brings up um, his appointment, the necessity to appoint faithful leaders who uh, exemplify this. So is he really concerned about the individual stations of life? Uh, For instance, the teachers of the word, the older and younger men and women, wives and husbands and their kids or the bondservants. Is that his focus? Is his focus their associated or we would say expected godly conduct? Is that in each one of those stations? Is that what, what Paul's really getting to with Titus? Is that his focus? Or is he rather more concerned with the overall gospel witness 
of everyone in their respective stations in society. Let me ask that again. Or is Paul concerned with the overall gospel witness of everyone in their respective stations in society? I would say the latter. That's what he's concerned with. And he's addressing particular roles from the family on out, from teachers on out, from roles of employment and so on. He's addressing this saying, look, every aspect of life needs to be addressed here. There is not a matter in life that the gospel does not address or speak to, right? So I would say the answer is the text says everything. (laughs) The answer to this is everything. If you notice, uh, it's everything in everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God. So the doctrine of God, our Savior, is to be adorned as a word picture. Let's consider what the adorning means. So the word is cosmeo, and you can uh, correct me later, Andrew. (laughs) Uh, The strong say it's cosmeo, right? Which really means to cause something to be beautiful by decorating it, to beautify it, to give it an adornment or or adorning, the action of adorning. I like what... uh, the um, um, bedad says, bedag, excuse me, the bedag. It says, to do credit to, that they may do credit to the teaching in all respects. So think about that. It's specifically dealing with the doctrine of God, that, that the doctrine of God would have been given credit to, that they're doing credit to in every aspect. This is what the adorning of the doctrine of God our Savior looks like. So then we have to ask this adornment. It's dealing with the issue of how the community ought to live, right? So it's a way, I would say, that commends the gospel of kingdom of God to everyone. It's a particular character exhibited by our words and works. And that is to say, those biblical or apostate words or works, and our worldview is consistently fleshed out in real time. So I'm sure you've heard this, this statement before, something along the lines of, I hear what you're saying, but I'm watching your feet. Actions speak louder than words, right? Your words and your works go hand in hand. Your actions are declaring your theology, right? Is that fair enough to say? Your actions are declaring what your theology is. Now, you might be saying one thing. You might, you might have all the theological ducks in a row, if you will. We would say orthodoxy. Your, your orthodoxy might be in a row. But what I'm watching is your orthopraxy how you actually live out your life. And that's what Paul's dealing with Titus here. He says, watch both, Titus. Pay very close attention to that. That in all things, the gospel of God is to be adorned. Not just in one narrow category, but in all things. Is that fair? Fair enough to say? Okay. So what is the principle behind this? Go on to Titus, verses 2, 11 through 15. Or chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. It says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Do you think if when Titus shared this message, people thought maybe he, he's being a little arrogant, being a little hard, a little too judgy, a little too difficult with people, right? 
This is a tough one, right? Is he being tough with them? Yes, he is. He was to do it with all authority, right? So let's take a look at this. So we need to, we need to be trained to renounce ungodliness, okay? And worldly passions. We need to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, okay? And this all comes with a looking forward to in the hope. We are to be redeemed from all lawlessness, okay? What is lawlessness? According to 1 John 3, 4, it's everyone who makes a practice of sinning. That is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. According to what law and standard, you might, might wonder. God's law and God's standard. The law of Christ. The law of love, if you might say. The law of love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay? We're to purify ourselves. As a people, and he's to purify us for himself, excuse me, he's to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, right? In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's something God has prepared to work in, to work in and through us, and he prepared those beforehand, before we were born again. And you could argue before the foundations of the world were laid, in Ephesians 1, right? So we're, we're to be a people who are prepared to work, to do and to work out our salvation and to declare the good news of the kingdom of God in all matters of life and faith. We are to redeem, if you will, work towards the redemption of those from all lawlessness in the power of Christ by the declaration of his good news, right? So you're calling, you're, we're, we're to be called out of lawlessness. We're to declare these things, as Paul goes on to say, to exhort and rebuke with all authority, letting no one disregard us. If you notice, Paul says the same exact thing to Timothy in a, in a very similar way. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of, of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For there is a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That wasn't just for Timothy. That was for all of us. As you note this morning, our scripture reading came from Ephesians 4. Particularly in verse 12 of Ephesians 4 is that the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the prophets and so on, the apostles, were what? Given to you as a gift from God, right? That we are given these gifts by Jesus Christ to teach, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What happens is we get an over-exaltation of this role, this particular vocational role of ministry, and we neglect the latter, which is your role in ministry. We're, our job is to equip you, to rebuke you, to exhort you, to teach you, to build you up, right? To ultimately bring the unity in Jesus Christ in all things, in all matters of life and faith. We're to be unified. And that's our job. It's a hard role, but that's our job. That's what we're here for. 
And that just doesn't, that doesn't happen here alone in the safety of the, of the sanctuary, if you will. It goes beyond this, and I'm going to get into that in just a moment. I like what Stephen Charnock says about uh, this particular role, right? What does this role look like? He says, the gospel adorns the soul by its impression. The soul should endure the gospel by its conversation. I'm going to read that again. The gospel adorns the soul by its impression. The soul should adorn the gospel by its conversation. As Titus says, uh, or as Paul says in Titus 2.10, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Let the writing of the law in the heart appear on the other side of life, and the divine light in your heart shine in your outward man as a candle through a lantern that God may be glorified. I love that descriptive language, right? That this law of God written on your heart as though a candle inside of a lantern would shine through you. And it says the other side, when he's speaking to is all matters of life, right? So what we're addressing here is worship. It's our format of worship, like uh, Christian taught today. Um, This is a worship service, right? And we have to recognize that worship in itself, this adornment, which is uh, the doctrine of God, is, is provoking us to worship. And this worship can't be separated from other matters of life outside of the sanctuary. But as Sharnock says here, it's something that's an extension from your heart, as the law of God is written on your heart, as though a candle inside of lantern, it glows in all matters of life on the other side of the sanctuary, if you will. It's an outflowing, it's an overspilling. And you cannot, you cannot make a distinction between what you do in worship here with the worship that needs to spill over in your life on the outside. The Lord Jesus Christ describes it this way. Sharnock quotes Matthew 5.16. He says, uh, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So it is this outflowing of light as you, as we reveal the light and convey it in here, the light of Scripture of God's Word, we provoke you to worship of the living God in our worship service. This light should then, what, prevail beyond those doors. It should go out into all of life. It's not something that you can uh, distinguish, separate from what you do in here to what you do out there. Okay. So Christian light in the home has societal implications. Again, as Christian taught this morning, the way we raise our families has societal implications, right? What does it say about obedient children? Paul says this in Ephesians 5, to honor their mother and father. What, what does he say about the land? It will go well for them in the land if they do, right? There are implications to the way we raise our children. Societal implications in raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Okay? A lot of that was exactly what Christian taught on this morning. Thomas C. Oden notes in his commentary on First and Second Timothy and Titus that Christianity, quoting him here, Christianity has an important stake in the home. Its right ordering, its decency, its love, and its capacity to enable growth. If Christianity does not act to guide and enable these values, it will not show its social worth and will in the long run become justifiably discredited. I love what uh, Robert Yarborough says about that. And commenting on this quote, he says, 
quote, there is a truth in this assertion, but Paul is not arguing solely from the basis of social utility. God created humans to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. In the biblical economy, this mandate involves marriage and family. Godly domestic patterns undoubtedly send a message to a watching world. But more fundamentally, note this, more fundamentally, they mark the doxological living patterns that enable the crown of God's creation to see and flourish. Referencing Psalm 8. There is a doxological living pattern that enables the crown of God's creation to flourish. I love that language. A concern in Paul because of its concern to Jesus and to the Jewish heritage that they shared. Think about this. This is our heritage that we've adopted. What does it say in Genesis chapter 1, right? The command was to be fruitful and multiply. You can't be fruitful and multiply when you kill your children. They will have no heritage. They will have no blessing of the womb. And they are directly rebelling against their creator's mandate. They cannot flourish in a society. And a society cannot flourish itself, making a legal system around abortion, the destruction of the family. Amen? When you, when you, go, when you fly against the created order, I like this word, this doxological living pattern that enables us to, enables the crown of God's creation, who is us, the image bearer of God, to flourish. When you, when you fly in the face of that, you're rebelling against the living God. You're living in lawlessness. As a matter of fact, you're encouraging lawlessness in the society. And guess where it starts? It starts in the light of the home, doesn't it? Christian and I are talking about how our education system, the governmental education system as a whole, has discipled our children, for those who are involved in it, to believe that they are merely clumps of cells. To believe that they are somehow a cosmic accident, biologically evolved over billions of years, and have no inherent value, like the image bearer. And to the point where if, they, if they're taking up too much resources, um, that it is okay and acceptable to put them to death in as much as they're still inside the womb, and in some cases, just shortly outside of it. They're not a living creature, we're told. They're a parasite on, on the created order. They're taking up resources that are precious, that are limited, and if too many kids are born, then um, it'll come to the destruction, ultimately, as, as though a virus or a cancer of all of the created order. You have an entirely different system of thought and beliefs about the world, who we are, the created order. They don't even believe that that, that exists. I keep using that term. That doesn't exist in secular language. What you have, folks, is a different format of worship and a different good news, don't you? You have another gospel. You have another eschatology. When I say that word, that's just how they believe things are going to end up. And because of their eschatological outlook and because of the way the way they view us as creatures, they're going to be approaching life in a particular way. Things like mandates and controls. And they're going to motivate you through fear. And they're going to take your children from you and they're going to disciple them, right? Uh, that's exactly what they're doing, okay? So, Paul exhorts Timothy uh, on this note. He says that he is to be personally an example. Uh, he says to set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. That he first, as the teacher, as the, the elder or the pastor of the church, 
is to set this example uh, in conduct, in speech, love, faith, and purity. Okay, 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 16 says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set to the believers an example of speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching, to not neglect the gift that is in him, right? A gift that was given to him by prophecy when the council of elders had laid hands on him, and practicing those things to immerse himself in them so that all may see his progress. He was to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching and to persist in this, for by doing so, he would save both himself and the hearers and his hearers. This term example uh, could be translated as typos, right? Uh, elsewhere, we find a, a, a pattern of teaching. It's, it's something that the Roman church upheld. In Romans 6.17, it says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart and standing of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There's this pattern, this standard of teaching that they had been given. This instruction, uh, Paul calls it in other places, the deposit. right? And that deposit was to be handed over to faithful teachers that they would do the same and continue on um, the doctrine that they were to adorn themselves with. Okay, To Paul's model for the Philippians, in Philippians 3.17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You can compare that with 2 Thessalonians 3.9 where he says, as an example, um, Paul notes about the Thessalonians to imitate. So it wasn't just the teacher's example, the pastor's example, but uh, the Thessalonians, or the Thessalonians, excuse me, Thessalonians were such an example in faith, he was calling other churches to imitate their example in the faith. And that model that the Thessalonian believers were to the church in Macedonia and Achaia, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 7, they became an example to all believers. It was something that they that they were uh, they were to emulate. Question and challenge you to you today as we stand out in this issue, are we a model to emulate? Are we a model when it comes to ending abortion in our city, county, and, and state and beyond? Are we a model to emulate? Should other churches be following us? Are we leading by example as your pastors? Are we out in the highway and byways, right? Are we faithfully preaching the word and rightly dividing it? Um, and are we a church that others, when they look into us, they go, that's a church that I want to emulate. These people stand firm in the faith. They care. They're concerned about the things that God's concerned about. They want to see lawlessness destroyed. They want to see the gospel of the kingdom faithfully proclaimed in all matters of life. So Christian leaders... We, you, are unexcusably player coaches. <laughs> unexcusably. All right? You're not theoreticians who place burdens on people, but are willing to lift a finger and then move. I love that. You're player coaches, unexcusably. Right? Not theoreticians who place burdens on people and then are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Think about what Jesus says um, to the scribes and Pharisees on this exact matter, Matthew 23, 4, beginning in verse 4, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but the works that they do, uh, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, 
for they make their phylacteries broad and their, and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marking places, being called rabbi or teacher or pastor by others. So you pastors out here who are watching, out there who are watching on, that's for you on this subject matter. That's for me and Jonathan here. We're not just allowed to place this heavy burden on you, preach these hard messages, right? Um, and burden you with this without lifting a finger. Not being willing to do it ourselves. it's the height of hypocrisy. Let, us not that, let, it, let it not be true of us. Let us be leading by example, unexcusably player coaches, right? Not theoreticians. Now, I understand that the attraction towards the theoretical and speculative study is strong. I get that. Puritan study is a big part of that, right? <laughs> it's strong, and it's actually not a bad thing. It's not wrong, per se, to study through things, to think about things and ponder things. The problem is, is when it remains mere speculation, when it remains in the theoretical and fails to produce biblical orthopraxy, which is a right, fruitful living, a full-orbed expression of the biblical worldview, it's worthless. It's worthless to your Creator. It's worthless to your Savior when your life is merely caught up in the theoretical and speculative. When you can hash out a point to infinity and crush everybody around you with your, with your theological jargon, yet it's not producing anything in your life that relates anything remotely close to the heart of God, you're running astray. Your heart's a mess, right? Um, Yarbrough brings up uh, Schlatler's comments for that. He says, Titus and all groups he admonishes, their, tax, their tasks consist not in a, an acquisition of some special knowledge, not in arriving at a particular experience of divine grace, but in transformation of daily affairs that fill up everyday living. It is a transformation of the daily affairs that fill up everyday living. And I think what you mentioned earlier today, I wrote a little note. Uh, immersion. It's this immersive reality that as the Word of God is being applied to your heart, you have this immersion within it, that it becomes a regular part of your thinking, and it affects and impacts and it transforms every matter that fill up every day, everyday living, right? Think about our words and our speech conduct. Those things can cripple and harm people, right? But Titus, his discourse, or Logos, is to be a restorative and healing, a soundness, And that soundness is to lie in potential to strengthen and make whole what has been broken and shattered down. And that result will be a teaching that can't be condemned. Let me give you an example, okay? When someone comes to you and says that a person is merely a clump of cells, okay? They, they have no intrinsic value. They're a clump of cells and capable of being discarded from conception Eight weeks, 22 weeks, 36 and beyond, okay? Even from even post-birth. As a, as a uh, biblical thinker, you are to address them in, the biblical, in a biblical way, but first you are to do what's called pressing the antithesis. If someone's coming to you, there's, as you if you guys get a chance to see this video of this angry man uh, who is violently protesting us, calling us domestic terrorists, he's, he used that exact argument, and I respond in this very simple way. If we are merely clumps of cells, then why are you so mad, bro? And he paused and he had to think about that for a brief moment. 
I said, you're, think about it. You're just determined by, by your biology. You're just a clump of cells like me, right? You called my buddy a clump of cells. You're a clump of cells. I'm a clump of cells. We're just doing what clumps of cells do, right? Why are you mad? And where does domestic terrorism come from, from a clump of cells? You shouldn't care. Trees fall on people. Avalanches happen. Tsunamis happen. Clumps of cells happen. You shouldn't care. You shouldn't be concerned. So why are you angry again? Why are you so upset about that? Now, I know why I'm angry. I, I, I know exactly why I should be angry. Do you know what? I'm angry that you're calling a person who has intrinsic value made in the image of God a clump of cells that has no dignity and is not worthy of respect. I'm upset that you would go as far as to threatening our lives with your incoherence. I'm upset that your inconsistency has led you to violence and that you have no ability to actually defend your position so much to the point you just shout over the top of me. You're unwilling to listen to what we have to say because you have somehow determined in your mind that you're right and we're wrong. And so much to the point where you'd be willing to lock us up in a FEMA camp, torture us in that FEMA camp, and put us to death because of your views. That's wrong. That's evil, and that's injustice. And I can stand for that, and I can actually be a little upset about that, amen? So our biblical worldview needs to direct our thinking, and it needs to direct the way we look at things and the way we address things. A full immersion, what I would say, biblical fluency. So if Titus is circumspect in his speech and practices these patterns, any such opponents will be shamed because they have nothing bad with which to charge him. In the end of it all, that's exactly the very thing that, that we should experience when we engage with people, when we engage with unbelieving worship, because that's all you're, you're engaging with. They're worshiping something aside from the living God, and you're commanding them to return to that worship. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, that you're to destroy every argument. You break down the strongholds of every vain opinion and imagination and philosophy of man in the wisdom of God bringing all to obedience to Christ. That should be your experience. So when you're struggling through that and you feel like you need to, you're making a defense for the hope that lies within you um, and you're, you're finding you're, that that's not the result, there's something going on with your approach. And we should emulate that. So Paul then goes on to say that um, as, as according to his model, and he urges Titus, an understanding of grace that does not promote passivity and rather stirs up zeal, even in the present age, which in so many ways seems to be given over to evil, okay, in the present evil age. And its sinister would-be ruler now in the present age is at work with those who are disobedient. So again, Paul is modeling that his work does not promote passivity, but it directly engages in the face of the evil age, the rulers of this evil age. It brings to bear the inconsistency. It brings to bear their vain worship and their imaginations. And it does so with zeal. And it exposes the disobedience, if that makes sense. So in this idea of the spilling over of worship, in Christ we should be people transformed by his work, eager to do what is good. So we should be running into the battlefield, if you will. Not passively making excuses for ourselves why we're not going to engage with this issue. right? What I called uh, in the last sermon, theological justifications. Theological excuses. 
So Paul conceives of these works not as optional activities or even virtuous ideals for believers, but as the inevitable outworking of Jesus' signature saving action in light of his resurrection. It is the outflowing of these things. Him saving you, his action, his saving and redeeming action in your lives and your hearts, uh, these actions should automatically, out of, out of an outflow of an overspilling of our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should desire to see him honored in every facet of life, come what may, and be zealous to do so, right? In the words of Calvin, men are not sufficiently reminded of their duty unless they are also vehemently urged to do it. We are here today to vehemently urge you to do your duty in this matter. Let me close. Spurgeon uh, taught an actual sermon on this. I, I found this. Um, and in a word of application, okay, Jonathan and I, him probably a little bit more than I, beat our heads against the wall when it comes to the uh, teaching of application. Uh, that's your job, just so I can be clear today, right? When we say there wasn't enough application in that sermon, Jeremy or Jonathan, uh, where's the application in all this? How do I begin to go and apply it? Uh, I have given you points of application throughout the entire sermon. It's your job, uh, and I would say the work of the Holy Spirit in you as he convicts you uh, to recognize the reality of what's before you, to hear his word carefully, and you go apply it. Because I could not possibly give every point of application when the gospel of the kingdom of God addresses all matters of life and faith. Right? And the issue of abortion, all we're saying is, don't murder your child, please. Allow us to help you. There is no situation so desperate uh, that you should even ever consider it as an option. It should not be an option. It is not your choice in the matter. You're making a choice to put a child to death um, for something that they've never done. They're an innocent person. They deserve just as much equal protection under the law as we do. And a person begins at conception... Because God has created, he has opened the womb. He has knit them in their mother's womb. Um, and it is not up to us to take those lives when it's not convenient for us. It's given, you have given yourself over into a worship that is now somehow theologically, because it's just as much a theological argument on their side as it is ours. You have theologically permitted yourself to destroy your child for the sake of selfish gain. And you're ignoring the reality that's sitting right before you that that is a person just like you and I. They have a unique DNA. All of the information has been written. We can say uh, in creative language, God has authored their lives, given them to us as a gift, right, Christian? To be sent out as arrows into the world, to be a blessing. And you're taking what God has made beautiful and trashing it and discarding it. That's our message. That's the application. So let's listen to what Spurgeon has to say, and I'll conclude with his words, okay? He has a way with words. He says here, quoting, Be careful to engage in good deeds. Whether you are a babe in grace or a strong man in Christ Jesus, a holy household is a pillar to the church of God. Children brought up in fear of God, as cornerstones polished after a similitude of a palace, you husbands and wives are lived together in holy love, and see your children serving God. You do credit to the teaching of God our Savior in doing that. Tradesmen who are esteemed for integrity, merchants who bargain to their own hurt and do not change, dealers who can be trusted in the market without, without, with uncounted gold, 
your acts are good and beneficial, both to the church and to the world. Men are one in Christ when they see Christianity embodied in the good and the true. But when religion is a thin veneer or a mere touch of tinsel, they calling it humbug. Rough as the word is, it is worthy of contemptible thing that it describes. If our religion comes from the very soul, if our life is the life of Christ in, in us, and we prove that we have new hearts and right spirits by acting the honorable, the kindly, the true Christian part, these things are good and beneficial to those who watch us, for they may induce them to seek for better things. I pray you, be careful to engage in good deeds. I thus stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. If your minds were not pure, I would not stir them up, for it would be of no use to raise the mud that now lies quiet. I stir you up because I am not afraid to do so, but I am sure it will do you good. You will take home this exhortation, and you will say each one to himself, what more can I do for Jesus? How can I walk more worthy of my profession? How can I be more careful to maintain good works? So may God bless you in doing so. Now you who do not believe in God, who have not come to trust in his dear son, I am not talking to you. To you I must say first that you must be made new creatures. I do not talk, I do not talk to a crab apple tree and say bear apples. It cannot. The tree must first become good before the fruit can become good. It is necessary for you to become born from above. You will never be better until you are made new creatures. You must be spiritually slain and then made alive again. There must be an end of you and there must be a beginning of Christ in you. God grant that this may happen at once, and may you immediately believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And may this prod you to help us in ending abortion in our city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just uh, I so thank you for your word. As I stumbled across this passage, I thought how wonderful it is that we should be adorned in all things, the doctrine of God, our Savior, all things, in every pattern of life, that we are to live out to your glory, that we are to make your name magnificent, as Psalm 8 says, in all the earth. That was just as much a command and a design in your created order as it was in Genesis 1, as it is now. And thankfully, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory and empowerment of the Spirit as you as you apply, Father, your work in Christ to us, that it leads us to, do, to seek the well-being of our city, a love for our city and a love for our people in it, and especially those little ones who don't have a voice for themselves. Lord, let us not be slack in this concern. Let's not make excuses for ourselves, but let us save those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Let us be a voice that cries out for what abortion truly is, murder in our cities. Let us be outraged internally. And let us be an effective change. Let us be an instrument in your hands to put this great enemy under your feet. And let us be faithful in that calling despite the resistance it might, it might, it might bring. I pray that you would strengthen the feeble hands, strengthen the knees, Equip your people, O Lord, and encourage them today to go out in their cities to do this great work 
in your glorious name. For the sake of the gospel, in Jesus' name, amen.